Hello, and welcome to the Canadian Story, where we discuss what Canada is, what Canada could be, and what Canada should be. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Canadian Story. Thank you so much for being here. We really appreciate it. Uh, today, we have on the show Mr. Brian Crowley. Brian, welcome to the show. Thanks very much, Zach. It's delightful to be here. And it's delightful to have you, good sir. Uh, for the listeners, could you please brief your background, what work you're involved in, and uh, kind of what you're all about so that people know who they're listening to? Sure. So I'm a serial think tank entrepreneur. Uh, I founded uh, a national think tank in Ottawa called the McDonald Laurier Institute. Uh, we're about to celebrate, I think, our 13th birthday. Uh, so I started uh, uh, here in uh, 2010. Uh, before that, uh, I had a think tank on regional issues uh, in, in uh, Atlantic Canada called the Atlantic Institute for Market Studies, which I ran for about 20 years. And sprinkled in there were little things like... Uh, I took a two-year leave of absence, and I was the um, Clifford Clark visiting economist at uh, Finance Canada, which is the most senior independent economic advisory job in the in the federal government. And um, I was on the editorial board at the Globe for a couple of years. So you know, got a PhD from the LSE, you know, all that kind of stuff. So um, uh, I'm I'm a, I'm a big ideas guy. Right. What's uh What's your PhD? Sorry. Go ahead, David. I was just going to say, so you've been heavily involved in kind of the the thought that has kind of determined the direct a lot of the conservative movement, and you've watched that kind of ebb and flow. I'd be really interested to see, as someone who cares about conservative values, what's your read on, on the direction of maybe the conservative movement, but, but also the country as a whole? Like, how do you feel as as a thoughtful conservative, and and those are the best kind of conservatives in my mind, with kind of the direction that everything's going? Sure. Well, uh, and Zach tried to get another little question there, which I will answer first. Uh, my my PhD is in political economy. Um, I, I am, uh, if you know who Friedrich Hayek was, I'm a Hayek scholar. Uh, my first book was about uh, Hayek's uh, constitutional, social, and economic thought. Uh, so, um, look, uh, uh, first of all, it's important to say uh, I'm a, uh, if, if you have to characterize me politically, uh, I think of myself as a classical liberal. That's also, by the way, how Hayek thought of himself. Um, uh, so I'm in the intellectual tradition of people like Adam Smith and John Stuart Mill uh, uh, Tocqueville, um, you know, Bernard Mandeville, uh, these kind of people. Um, now that has become, uh, subsumed largely in the small C conservative movement, if you want to call it that way in North America, you know, in Europe, uh, liberalism is still very much associated with, uh, these ideas. Um, and conservatism is something a little different. Uh, so, um, you're asking me for my, uh, assessment of, uh, the conservative movement. I say this, uh, not as a large C conservative. I don't care about the political parties. They're just not particularly interesting to me. Uh, so I'm, I'm speaking as, uh, someone who thinks a lot about political and philosophical issues. <clears throat> so with that uh, background, you know, uh, what, I, what I'd like to start by saying is that, I don't know if you feel the same way, uh, my view is that uh, Canada uh, is a rather anti-intellectual kind of place. Canada is a place that isn't actually very interested in ideas. Um, Canadians are very practical, down-to-earth people. I don't say this in any, you know, dismissive way. Uh, it's not that if you're not interested in ideas, you're not worth uh, thinking about. I, I couldn't disagree more. Uh, but I think that because we are a society that isn't particularly moved by ideas, um, we end up 
uh, uh, falling victim to people who come along and, uh, you know, have a, a, a bright, shiny new policy or direction they want to take the, the, uh, the, the government or the country. And we don't always have the tools at hand to be able to think through what those ideas really mean and what the effect might be on us, on our individual lives and on uh, the larger society. And um, I'm one of these people who believes that um, ideas are the most powerful force in the world. You know, if you put an idea in people's heads, you change the way they think, you change the way they behave, you change what they want, uh, you change how they relate to other people. You know, Victor Hugo said, uh, ideas are more powerful than all the armies in the world. And I think he said that because, you know, when you think about armies and police and so on, you can, you can use armies and police to force people to do things that they don't want to do. But with an idea, if you persuade them, they do what you want them to do because they want to do it. And so uh, ideas are far more, uh, if you like to think about it this way, far more efficient. Uh, armies and police are terribly inefficient because you have to force people to do what you want. So um, uh, I think that the most fundamental battles in society are battles over ideas because ideas are what determine where we're going to go, what kind of society we're going to have, how we're going to behave, how we relate to each other. So even though Canada uh, is not, uh, as a, uh, in my experience, you know, is, is a society not terribly interested in ideas, ideas are interested in us. And, you know, if we have to think about the, the ideas that we have in our heads that are making us behave certain ways that make us demand certain policies from government and ask ourselves, you know, gee, if we, if we really kind of unpack those ideas, do we really think they make sense? Because if they don't, we're headed in the wrong direction. And what might better ideas look like? So that's kind of what I've devoted my life to. What sorts of ideas are you seeing in Canada right now that when unpacked don't make sense to you? You know, my last book was called uh, Gardeners versus Designers. And uh, a lot of people say, <laughs> they look at that book and they say, when did Brian get interested in gardening? I, 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 you know, it's, it's, it's a metaphor. And what I was trying to talk about in that book was exactly this business about what are the ideas that are kind of predominant right now in, um, in Canada and maybe Western society uh, more generally? Um, do they make sense? Uh, what might better ideas look like? And um, I, I, I use this metaphor of gardeners versus designers because what I was trying to get at was that um, we, we live in a time in which uh, bureaucracy guided by expertise uh, is very popular. It, you know, if you think about uh, the response to the um, to COVID, for example, you know, the whole response was guided by this idea that people at the top, people, uh, you know, policymakers in Ottawa, public health authorities, uh, uh, have access to all the necessary information in order for us to make uh, the right decisions about how to respond to pandemics. And so, we allowed people at the top. Uh, on the basis that they had this uh, unique uh, expertise that they knew more than anybody else uh, about these issues, uh, we allowed them to basically tell us how to behave for a couple of years. They locked us up in our houses, for God's sakes. Uh, and uh, all of this was based on the idea that we should defer to bureaucracy guided by expertise. And I call that designing. Uh, you know, the idea that there are people at the top who know so much more than the rest of us that we should kind of defer to them. We should let them tell us uh, how we should organize our lives um, um, and, um, uh, you know, whether we should be locked away at home or wear masks or physical distance or uh, all the other things that uh, we talk about. And it's, it's not just with respect to uh, COVID. I mean, we have, um, you know, all this uh, rhetoric around uh, uh, diversity uh, and um, 
you know, we should be seeking as a society to have ourselves organized in such a way that, you know, when we look at how incomes are distributed across groups, for example, um, you know, men and women and racial minorities and uh, we, we we should see certain patterns in the way that good things in society are distributed. And those patterns should please us when we see them from some 30,000 foot level. Uh, So, you know, we should make sure that jobs are distributed uh, the right way across all these groups and incomes and uh, all these other things. And my book is based on the idea that, in fact, um, bureaucracy guided by expertise is actually not that smart. It's not actually based on a, a, a superior knowledge of society, a superior knowledge of how we should organize our lives. And in fact, um, it's it, bureaucracy guided by expertise actually has difficulty doing simple things like issuing passports. Uh, and so when you think about immensely complicated things like how income is distributed in society or who gets what jobs or whether we should have meritocracy or whether we should, you know, shunt that aside and decide to um, distribute the good things in life based on, um, you know, whether you're a member of uh, this group or that group, you know, whether you're a man or a woman or uh, white or not white or all these other things. Um, I, I, I sort of lay out the case in the book that Letting people at the top, these bureaucrats uh, uh, with their expert advisors, tell us how to run our lives is actually a recipe for unhappiness rather than happiness. And uh, I think that we should be aiming to um, actually get a lot of the bureaucrats and their alleged knowledge out of our way so that we can decide for ourselves how we want to live our lives. Okay, I have a question. Um, I want to take this from from a kind of a different only angle. One? You only have, you only have one question. <laughs> no, I have like I have I'm I have four or five in my brain, and I'm running out of space to remember them, so I should be writing them down. But what I want to ask you right now, let's take this from a different angle, um, because yep. I would agree with you. I think that top down decision making um, puts policy out of touch with the people that it governs. It, I, I think that's a fairly straightforward concept. So the question is, you're you're making the argument that the bureaucrats and their expert advice have um, too much power and are playing too key of a role in everyday lives. I, I I think I'm understanding you correctly. Then what role do you see those bureaucrats playing well? How would you redefine their responsibilities to better serve the people of our country or is it that they need to just get out of the way and and not cease to exist where do you where would you see them lie well see part of the part of the argument that i'm trying to make is that um uh nobody has the knowledge to run society from the top right you know the, the, we we give them authority and they just organize everything and tell us what to do nobody has that kind of knowledge uh because it's in the nature of uh, knowledge, and, and and my book talks about this quite a lot, that, um, uh, uh, you know, bureaucrats um, and people who run private companies and people who run universities and so on, they all have their particular area of expertise, things that they do well. Uh, but uh, when they step outside, uh, their areas of genuine expertise, uh, that's when things start to go awry. And I, I, I use an example in the book because people will say, well, but somebody has to be in charge. You know, somebody has to decide what has to be done. And I, I, I say, well, it depends on what you mean by that, because I actually don't think that somebody needs to be in charge. One of the examples I use in the book <clears throat> was given to me by um, a guy named Norman Barry, who used to be a professor of uh, political thought at Buckingham University in the UK. And he said, look, you know, there's two universities in the US Midwest. He didn't, he didn't name them, but it really doesn't matter. Uh, he said, two universities in the Midwest in the United States built about the same time. 
He said in one of them, he said they, they built the campus and the, uh, the, the people in charge uh, wanted to have a lovely campus as seen from 30,000 feet. They wanted it all to be beautifully symmetrical and organized. So they, they built all the buildings and laid out the paths and the gardens and so on so that it looked beautiful from the air. The only problem was that the pathways didn't actually take people where they wanted to go. If you were in a hurry to get from class to the cafeteria or back again, um, following the paths that they'd kind of laid out because they looked great from the air, uh, was terribly inefficient. And so people were always cutting across the lawn to, uh, in, a, in a straight line to get to where they wanted to go. And so there was always this battle between the authorities who wanted things to look, you know, to fit their pattern of how they wanted things to be uh, and and what the students were trying to do to actually get to class. And And Norman said, you know, in the other university, what they did instead was they built all the buildings and then they didn't landscape for a couple of years and they let people wear in the earth the pathways that actually were helpful to them in getting where they wanted to go. And so those, those pathways, the way that you connected the different buildings, wasn't designed by authority and imposed on everybody else. It grew out of the experience of people trying to do practical things like getting to class on time. And there was no conflict between uh, the, um, the, uh, the authorities at the university and the students uh, because, uh, you know, it was the students through their lived experience that actually chose the routes that were available to them on campus. And the university didn't have this abstract plan about what the university should look like from the air. They didn't want it to be pleasingly symmetrical and so they wanted it to work for people uh, and I, I you see I, I think that's a that's that, that's a wonderful metaphor for the difference between the designer approach to society and the idea that well somebody has to be in charge and it might as well be bureaucrats informed by expertise uh, who have these wonderful plans about how things should look uh, whereas you know the other uh, uh, the other model, the, the competing way of doing things says nobody's in charge. Uh, uh, what you have to do is you have to let people demonstrate through their lived experience what works best for them and then uh, uh, let them get on with it. Uh, uh, but of course, you have to have rules about, uh, you know, you can't hurt other people uh, while you're uh, walking the pathway. I mean, there are rules about how people behave together in society. But they shouldn't, they shouldn't lay out a pattern that everybody has to conform to. They'd just be rules that say there are certain things you're not allowed to do. As long as you don't do those things, you're free to do your own thing. And that's when people, in my view, when people are free to do their own thing but have to take account of the fact that other people have other objectives in life, they want to live differently, they want to go different places, uh, uh, you, you, you have to take account of other people and what they want. Uh, uh, when when people are allowed to pursue their own objectives in life, that's when you start to create institutions and uh, circumstances in which people are liable to be able to make a life for themselves that makes them happy. I want to dig into that a little bit because you said you studied Hayek in uh, university. So this is a very market-based approach to solving problems, which I love personally, how do you uh, how do you respond to critics who claim that that that? Well, I guess to summarize what you're saying, freedom allows for human flourishing because freedom allows for humans to make a series of choices on their own that, when codified, is just better for humans. Yes. Now, how do you respond to critics who claim? That, the, that that just leaves all of the vulnerable and the, you know, and the unfortunate behind. And, and the reason we need to centralize is because some people are just not capable of making their own free decisions. Now, I obviously don't agree with that, but I'd love to hear, how do you respond to that criticism? Sure. Well, look, I, um, you know, even Hayek said that there should be, uh, you know, guaranteed annual income, uh, you know, that uh, a, a well-organized society doesn't leave uh, uh, the, the vulnerable, uh, the weak uh, to fend for themselves. Um, uh, uh, on the contrary, you know, it is a society uh, in which people are free to pursue 
the good life as they understand it, that is liable to be not only a society in which people are happy uh, or more happy than the alternative. Anyway, nobody, no, there's no society where everybody's happy unless you're all on some kind of drug like uh, uh, Aldous Huxley would uh, say. Um, uh, so, um, but you're, you're not only likely, likely to be more happy, you're likely to be more economically productive. You're likely to have a richer society. Uh, one in which there are more resources available to do the things that are important. And um, uh, that includes looking after the, the weak and the vulnerable. Uh, you know, when you have a, a, a wealthy, growing society, it's easier to set aside resources to help the people who need help than it is in a society that's static, in which everybody, uh, you know, if anybody's to get more, somebody else has to take less. Uh, the, the great thing about a growing society is that everybody can get more. Everybody can get more. And that resolves many social conflicts, right? Uh, and um, uh, so, you know, a, a society in which people are free to put their efforts into the things that really move them, that, that, that they feel are important, that they feel satisfy and fulfill them as human beings, is going to be a society which is going to be richer than uh, the alternative where, you know, let's say, uh, as happened in the Soviet Union and as happened in the West during, uh, uh, during wartime, you know, governments said, uh, uh, we don't care what you want to do. Uh, right now, we need welders uh, or we need cobblers or we need computer uh, analysts. Or we, and, and that's what you're going to do. Um, a, a society in which people are encouraged to do the things that they want is one that uh, uh, generates more wealth. And of course, wealth, you know, people somehow, when they hear the word wealth, they think, oh, you know, we're just talking about more uh, huge yachts for the 1% or something. I, this is completely to, to misunderstand the purpose of wealth. You know, wealth is the capacity to solve problems. So that, for example, it's entirely possible uh, to identify uh, poor countries in the world that have problems with annual flooding. Uh, Bangladesh would be a great example. Uh, you know, uh, every year, uh, the, uh, half the country gets flooded. Uh, you know, huge swaths of the population are displaced. Wealth, uh, uh, you know, the, the, the wealth of the society infrastructure is destroyed. Uh, and it's hugely costly. Now, it's not that they don't know how to solve the problem of flooding. You know, we know all about dams and dikes and so on. Uh, the, the, the problem is that they have the knowledge, but not the means. The means is wealth. Uh, and uh, you, you compare that to, say, Holland. This is a country that 40% of the land area is under sea level. And yet, because they are a society that has both knowledge and wealth, they're able to create a system of dikes and so on that, uh, that um, make their society larger than it would be otherwise, protect it from flooding, and, uh, and, and, and make them wealthier and more productive. So, uh, um, you know, uh, my argument is that it's not that economics and wealth are, uh, are the object. It's not the pointless enrichment of, you know, some social class or whatever, but rather the creation of the means to solve our problems, to make our knowledge effective. Uh, and wealth is indispensable for this. Hmm. Wealth as the capacity to solve problems is a whole new way of, of looking at that. And Peterson takes the same logic to a different argument around climate change. He says the, the, the best way to solve climate change or to solve um, the, the, the carbon footprint problem is to actually make energy affordable for people because as soon as they can accumulate more wealth, they take better care of the environment around them. Um, and I don't, I don't know where he sources work, but it, it seems like the same sort of logic to me. And I think that's very, very interesting. Um, so sorry, can, can I just open a parenthesis there? Yeah, please do. <laughs> I, I, sorry, I, I, I don't want to hijack the conversation, but you see, I think climate change is such an important example of uh, the conflict between gardeners and designers, between the people think that the solution is, um, 
uh, you know, bureaucracy guided by expertise, uh, as opposed to, you know, the decentralization of, uh, of power and authority in society and the creation of incentives to encourage people to do the right thing. These are, these are different models of how to organize society. And, um, I, I, I think climate change is a, is a, is a beautiful example of, um, bureaucracy guided by expertise run amok because, you know, when, uh, and it's not that I'm, I, I'm not a climate change denier. I think the evidence is that climate change is happening. The question is, how do we organize ourselves in an intelligent way to respond to climate change? Now, um, I, I always like to say, let's think about this by analogy. You know, the, the, the equivalent problem to climate change 100 years ago was the fact that, um, uh, uh, you know, the, the population of the world was growing at a, a faster rate then we were able to produce food. And uh, if you just projected those trends, those two trends, population growth and food production, side by side into the future, the only possible outcome was mass starvation. And, you know, if we'd let bureaucracy guided by expertise try to solve that problem, their reaction would have been, oh, well, the answer to that is to have fewer people because that's how you change the trend lines. You have fewer people, uh, and that we match people to our level of uh, food production. But in fact, what we did was something quite different. What we did was we unleashed the creativity of human beings to increase the food supply. We said, you know, let's, let's feed more people. Uh, and nobody was in charge of that. What happened was there was a, a huge number of incremental in improvements in the way that we produced food. You know, we've developed irrigation, we developed tractors, and we developed all kinds of other technological fixes, transportation, food storage, uh, the list goes on and on. And as a result of that, we are now, you know, uh, the, the population of humanity is, has uh, multiplied several times uh, over the last 100 years. Uh, we haven't topped out yet. And, and yet we produce 25% more food than the population of the world requires. And we will continue to do so uh, even in the face of uh, climate change. Again, uh, very important to note that the reason that we're able to do that is because we have unleashed the creativity of human beings. You know, every human being has a mind and is able to solve problems that they have knowledge about. Uh, uh, and... Uh, we are a richer society and we apply that wealth to the creation of fertilizer and fuel and um, tractors and all those other things. So that the Food and Agriculture Organization says, you know, even though we're going to reach something like 9 billion people by 2050, uh, and even though there's going to be climate change, we still will be able to feed those people because we are able to apply our wealth intelligently to the solution of our problem. So if we were to apply that approach to climate change, the answer would be not to turn down the screws on, say, um, uh, energy supply, which is what, uh, that's, that, that's the response of bureaucracy guided by expertise. Oh, we don't know how to solve the problem of climate change, so we're simply going to uh, make, human, make humanity poorer by reducing their access to cheap energy. Uh, the, the alternative way, which is, uh, again, you know, the way we solve the, the, the problem of growing population and food supply, the alternative way is to say, let's unleash the intelligence of humanity. Let's give them the resources that a wealthy society makes possible. And let's make all those thousands, millions of incremental technological adjustments and improvements. Uh, let's decarbonize the fuel supply. You know, let's uh, let's uh, invent better battery storage. Uh, let's do a thousand and one things uh, rather than one big thing, which the bureaucrats think is necessary. Let's do the thousand and one things that people actually know something about these problems uh, want to bring to the table. That's the better solution to climate change. Yeah, it's it's kind of like the difference between pessimism and optimism. I don't know why the, the bureaucratic machine always defaults to a very pessimistic viewpoint and solution. Um, but we've talked about this on the podcast before. We leave out all the time from calculations when we're calculating what how to solve some of the problems that our world is facing. We consistently leave out the idea of human 
progress and new yeah. ideas. And um, you, you make the argument, and I would agree with it, that if unleashed, humanity can solve the problems that plague it. And but the 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 issue is, it has to be a decentralized format. It has to be a freedom-oriented format where people who are boots on the ground in the moment with the problem right in front of them, they're going to see the details first and they're going to be able, be able to better respond to that. And, and if I could just, you know, pursue that for, for a moment, uh, there, there are actually, this isn't just, you know, some uh, gaseous uh, uh, fantasy about, oh, well, you know, let's just trust to humanity. The, the, the thing is that there are systemic reasons why authority, you know, bureaucracy guided by expertise at the top, has less knowledge, knows less than, than we collectively as humanity. I, I, let, me, let me give you an, a, an example. You know, uh, an absolutely brilliant man, Buckminster Fuller, wrote a book in uh, about 1960 in which he said, you know, um, a uh, hundred years ago, the amount of knowledge that human beings had, the, the, the totality of human knowledge, doubled about every century. Said, you know, by the time uh, of the writing of his book, 1960, you know, he said, you know, I, the, the doubling period has shortened pretty radically. It's maybe, you know, a couple of years now. Uh, IBM, um, uh, a couple of years ago, uh, made the argument that the totality of human knowledge, everything known by human beings, uh, doubles about every 24 hours. Now, you know, whether it's 24 hours or a week or a month or even a year, it doesn't really matter very much. The point is, if knowledge doubles, let's, let's say, every year, if knowledge doubles every year, uh, uh, that means that, uh, you know, if you do a university degree, uh, uh, you know, within a very few short years, the expert knowledge that you had accumulated as a result of that education, half of it is obsolete. It doesn't, it, it's not correct anymore. It's been overtaken by better ideas. And, uh, uh of course, knowledge is expanding in every direction and, and, and the, and, and the most dynamic areas are the ones that can most affect our lives, you know, like uh, probably the knowledge that we have of Jane Austen novels is not doubling every every year, but the knowledge we have about nanotechnology and biotechnology and artificial intelligence and all these things is, is probably doubling much faster than every year. And the, the point is that um, uh, if we want to use the totality of human knowledge in order to improve the lot of humanity, uh, we can't rely on these uh, people at the top of society who have only, uh, you know, uh, they're not any smarter than anybody else. They don't have access to some godlike overview of society. The only way that our society can make use of everything that is known by human beings is not by trusting to somebody to do surveys and ask questions and and therefore say oh now that we've asked you know a few questions we know everything we need to know about society that's rubbish uh, what we need to do is we need to have a set of institutions that encourage and reward people for using the knowledge they have in their head and coordinating and and cooperating with people who have different kinds of knowledge uh, in their heads because you know there's engineers and there's uh, uh, software designers and there's uh, people who know how to run restaurants and there's people who know how to fly planes and there's a, a million things every one of which has this huge knot of knowledge uh, which is known only to the people who do that job and um, you know people seem to think that because there's this vast ocean of knowledge out there uh, we can only make use of it if somebody at the top is telling us how to do so. And that's just nonsense. Uh, we have a system. I mean, think about when you take an airplane. You know, when you put your credit card down on the table uh, to buy a ticket, you're buying knowledge about uh, air traffic control and piloting and metallurgy and plane construction and fuels and catering and a, a, a zillion other things. You don't need to know anything about any of those things in order to take advantage of the knowledge that all those people have, all those experts, because uh, they, they say, oh, if you're willing to pay me to transport you uh, in certain conditions from point A to point B, I will do that for you. 
I don't need to know anything about it. Uh, but And yet, all of those activities are coordinated uh, without some, you know, authority telling you how to do it. And people say, oh, no, no, you know, airlines are regulated. And that's, that's such nonsense. And people who say this don't know anything about how this works. It used to be that the airlines were completely regulated. There was a somebody in power in Ottawa who said, you, you can only have so many flights between Winnipeg and St. John's, and you have to charge this much for it, and they have to fly with this frequency. And as a result, airline service was terrible and very expensive. We've deregulated to a very large extent. Ottawa still regulates some things, mostly around safety, and that's fine. I've got no problem with that. But the idea that, you know, Regulators at the top should organize the system so that we would get the benefit of all the knowledge of all these people. It doesn't work that way. It's the reverse. It's only when we let those people who have the knowledge act on that knowledge and we tell the experts that get lost that the system works. Just look at how hard it is to get a passport. Yeah. So why do you think then as a country we're stuck in this bureaucratic quagmire and how can we forge forward out of some of that mess into uh, more efficient systems that create better opportunities and lives for Canadians? Well, you see, I, I think you, you'll, you'll be unsurprised to know that I think we are, uh, what's happening is we are prisoners of bad ideas. Uh, you know, we have this uh, idea that, um, uh, you know, these, uh, these, smart people in Ottawa, you know, if we confer enough power on them, uh, we let them tell, uh, tell us what to do, that they'll fix our problem. Uh, now, I, I've given you some of the reasons, not all of them, but some of the reasons why I think this is, this, this is a vain hope. It's a fantasy. Uh, but, you know, the idea that there is somebody out there who's smart enough and has enough knowledge to fix our problems is a very attractive one. People want there to be somebody like that. And so there will always be periods when we say, oh, you know, we're, we're going to hand over to these people, uh, you know, the responsibility to fix our problems. The thing is that, um, you know, just as Margaret Thatcher said, you know, the problem with socialism is eventually run out of other people's money. Uh, the problem with uh, with with these uh, schemes to let uh, bureaucrat bureaucracy guided by expertise fix our problem, it doesn't work. And so, you know, you try it for a while, and then people start to say, "Gee, things not only don't seem to be getting better, they seem to be getting worse." And then they start saying, "So, why is that?" And then you begin to realize the emperor has no clothes, that the, the promise that was made, that if you only hand over to us this power and authority and, and we tell you that we're consulting with the best experts and, and uh, you know, surely you think we should be guided by the science, which is the current mantra, um, as if there was a scientific answer to every problem, which is nonsense. I, I, as soon as people start to say, whoa, doesn't seem to be producing the right result, then people are open psychologically to a different approach. And I think we're just on the cusp of that change happening and people saying, yeah, you know, I was really excited at the prospect that so many of our problems would be solved if we just handed them over to these smart people. Uh, but um, you know, eventually people learn from experience. And uh, I think we're, we're reaching a point where people say, yeah, you know, I, I got to learn from my experience that I, I, the, the theory was great, doesn't seem to have worked. What do we do now? And that's when you can start to get them interested in the ideas that say, well, actually, you know, that, that whole enterprise of giving power to uh, you know, scientists or bureaucrats or experts or however you like to think about it, um, hasn't worked. And you can come along and say, well, actually, there's 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 a better approach. We actually we actually use this better approach. It solves many of our problems. You know, wealth creation, the application of human intelligence to difficult problems, the creation of incentives to reward uh, innovation, etc. Uh, you know, making sure that uh, in trying to solve these problems, people aren't allowed to damage other people. You have to take account of other people's interests. 
that this is this is a system that actually works better. Uh, I, I I think we're 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 on the cusp of um, being able to shift people. Uh, you know the balance of uh, uh, intellectual pr- preponderance, if I can put it that way, is shifting. Yeah, I think we also have to put some of the onus back on the citizen too, and this is a culture problem. The the best thing about handing over the decision-making process to the bureaucrat and their team of expertise is that, well, there's there's two facets that are very attractive to that. Facet number one is that you don't have to do the thinking yourself. And facet number two is that if it doesn't work, you can blame someone else. And so you shirk off all of the personal responsibility of the outcome that you see out laid out in front of you. And I think culturally, we're kind of stuck there. We're, I, if I were to make a criticism of some of the culture in Canada today, it would be that there is this feeling of, well, we'll just defer because we're not smart enough. We don't know. It's none of our business. And well, you have to, well, you have to give credit where credit is due. If someone has dedicated their life to understanding something, you should listen to them speak on that thing. But I, you can't yep. do that at the same time as removing your personal responsibility to also apply your own brain power and your own knowledge and your own understanding and your own lens to that same problem. Because what happens in expertise is, is people get tunnel visioned. And I think that's something that we saw with COVID in the sense that we deferred only to public health officials who were only instructing on public health. And they were making decisions based on health, which is what they do. But we as a country were not taking into account the rest of everything else that was happening. <clears throat> that was in many ways quite damaging. So, well, yeah, look, if I could just leap in there, I, I, I completely agree. I mean, you know, a, a good a good friend of mine, uh, he he runs a, an auto parts company. He's one of the largest auto parts manufacturers in Canada. And he said, you know, very early on in the pandemic, he said, you know, we've learned at, uh, at, at, at my company how to protect our workers. They, you know, we sat down together and we said, okay, let's look at our processes. Let's look at our plants. Let's look at how we work together. Let's think about what we know about uh, COVID. And let's ask ourselves if we wanted to keep working while nonetheless protecting ourselves from what's known about the dangers of COVID, what would we do? And they came up with a series of, uh, uh, of, um, uh, of measures that were endorsed by uh, by the union, endorsed by the management, uh, kept people safe, uh, uh, and and were tailored to the specific knowledge that only they had about their working circumstances. But of course, what happened was the the politicians and the public health authorities came came over top and said, "Well, you know, based on our superior knowledge, uh, we don't think uh, we're going to let you do that. We're not going to let you act on your own knowledge." Um, uh, we're going to impose on you a lockdown. We're going to forbid you from working, uh, even though uh, you know uh, the, the 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 evidence seemed to be that um, uh, these people could organize their lives in a way that made kept them safe, but allowed them to keep doing what they what they wanted to do. And I think there's an object lesson in that. That remember that the 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 people at the top acting on uh, expertise. They don't know everything about your life. You are the one. You are the only one who knows all about your life. And if we want to have a society in which we as individuals are going to have the greatest chance of getting, uh, of having a fulfilling life, uh, you know, using our opportunities and our knowledge uh, for the betterment of ourselves and others, we have to, we have to take responsibility. This is this is an absolutely key aspect. Is that we can't hand over responsibility to the experts at the top who are necessarily necessarily ignorant about what we know about our own lives. Yeah. Okay. So in that scenario, what do you think drives that political decision from the top? Right. So in this scenario, there is a group of people who work at uh, whatever it is, an auto plant or whatever it happens to be, who get together and they say, we want everyone to be safe and we also want to work. How can we do that? And they devise ways that they feel 
protect the people who want to come to work and it's approved by the union and that's all good. So then the politician comes in and the public health authority comes in and they top down and they say, no, you can't do that. What do you think drives that decision? Do you think it's pride in their quote unquote expertise? Do you think it's fear of reprimand for not making the safe decision? What psychologically do you think drives some of those top-down decisions that don't take into account the expertise of the people who are actually living out the consequences of those policies? Well, look, I think it's a complex thing. I think there's a couple of things that I'll mention. I'm sure there are many more. Uh, One is the idea that, you know, look, in order to be successful at whatever you do, uh, you have to act on knowledge. You have to have the real facts about your situation. And one of the things about, um, you know, the mythology that's grown up around uh, expertise, you know, um, uh, the science and all this kind of stuff is that uh, these people possess more knowledge, more truth, more understanding of the real world than anybody else. And so, of course, you know, if if real knowledge is the condition of acting intelligently in the world, of succeeding at what you want to do, you, of course, want to defer to the people who've got the best knowledge. The only problem is, as I've already said, the people, you know, the, 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 the public health authorities or the, you know, the, 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 the other kinds of bureaucrats, uh, the scientific experts, their knowledge isn't perfect. It's not comprehensive. It's limited to a very narrow piece of society. And it's constantly evolving. They don't know themselves what people in their profession will know tomorrow. If you go back to the idea that knowledge is doubling every 24 hours or every week or every month, whatever it is, um, remember that those scientific experts, whatever they said today, at least half of the knowledge on which they've uh, based that is already obsolete. Uh, and especially as something as fast moving and evolving as COVID, uh, which is so responsive to specific circumstances and so on, uh, you know, the idea that somehow there are these uh, these uh, high priests of knowledge who uh, know so much more than the rest of us that we should defer to them. This is a powerful image. It just doesn't happen to stand up to analysis. So I think that's one piece of it. Um, actually, you know, our knowledge of our, our, our circumstances is much more real and practical uh, than the abstract knowledge that they have at the top about how, you know, entire populations ought to behave. Uh, I'm, so there's that. I, I also think, and I, I you know, I, I think this is part of human nature. Um, we 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 enjoy power. We we enjoy the ability to tell other people what to do. We enjoy feeling that um, you know we are the high priests of uh, our society. That what we know should overrule what you know, uh, and um, so you put these two things together, you know, this, this idea we have on our heads that we should defer to superior knowledge and the fact that, you know, once we've accepted this and we kind of start deferring to these people who have allegedly superior knowledge uh, and they start to say, hey, I like this way of doing things because uh, I'm really important now. Uh, whereas before I was an obscure public health official that nobody cared about. Uh, uh, you, you know, just those two things together, uh, I think, are uh, are not a recipe for social success. They're a recipe uh, for conflict, uh, for lowering the level of uh, human happiness and satisfaction, uh, and for uh, society operating not on the basis of more knowledge, but less. Right. Um, so we're closing in on the end here. David, do you have any any parting thoughts? I feel like we need to do another whole podcast so we can keep extracting knowledge from your brain, Brian. But uh, one of the things that I, I'd i like to pull out of what you've said and to kind of summarize for maybe the people who don't have quite the academic understanding that uh, you do is when we're talking about decision-making and we're talking about this 
uh, let's call it philosophy of the expert. What is the core belief that that people are having around experts that they need to change in order to take responsibility for their own society? Yeah, well, I, you see, I think that the the core belief is driven by something quite understandable. You know, I mean, we all want to defer to expertise, and and I'm not saying that's I'm not saying that's wrong. You know, if you go to a doctor, you're deferring to the doctor's expertise. The doctor has more knowledge about how your body works and, you know, what might be done to make it work better than you do. This is why you go to a doctor, right? That's why you go to a lawyer, because a lawyer knows more about how to, you know, use the law to your advantage, et cetera, et cetera. So there's nothing wrong. I, I want to make this very clear. Nothing wrong with the idea that there are experts out there who know more than you do about specific things. The difference, what I'm saying is, there's no such thing as an expert in society as a whole. That doesn't exist. So there's, there's, we are all experts on something. You know, we are each of us expert in our own lives. Nobody knows better than you do, uh, you know, the circumstances of your own life. And, and, you know, most importantly, what you want to do with that life. Uh, so there's nobody above you who can say, hey, let me organize things so that your life will be better. You don't know my life, right? Uh, so uh, uh, it, it's very important to understand that expertise is something very narrow, okay? So, you know, there's, 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 there's people that know uh, how to make furniture, and there's people who know how to make clothes, and there's people who know how to make uh, uh, tablets, and there's people who know how to make social media platforms and uh, you know the list goes on and on and every one of them requires people who have expertise in narrower things and then under them people who have even narrow expertise and that expertise is itself evolving all the time as we discover new knowledge so uh, um, uh, the idea that there should be somebody at the top who you know if you if you're going to let them run society they have to be able to overrule all of those other experts right they have to say, okay, you know, you think you know about your life, or you think you know about medicine, or you think you know about the law, or you think you know about how to create social media platform. I'm here to tell you that I'm going to substitute my knowledge for yours, even though I'm I'm not an expert in medicine or social media platforms or whatever, because I'm the guy at the top, and it's my job to tell you what to do. This is what doesn't work. So, expert, I I I don't want to leave anybody with the impression that I'm skeptical about the existence of expertise. On the contrary, our society depends on many, many, many organizations, all of which are based on a very narrow piece of expertise. What I'm against is having somebody over top of them saying, I'm, I know more than you when manifestly they don't, and I'm going to tell you how to behave. And I'm going to tell you how to use the opportunities that are available to you. And I'm going to tell you which ones you shouldn't pursue. And I'm going to tell you, you know, uh, how you should pay people and what the ethnic composition of your workforce should be and this, that, and the other thing. Uh, because what that does is it defeats the expertise of the people who actually know something about something. Right? Oh, I love that. <laughs> and that is such a good articulation of a problem that I've felt in my spirit, but never been able to outline like you just did, which is the experts are great. It's authority. That's the problem. Have you ever read the poem, uh, September, uh, 1st, 1939 by, uh, WH Auden? I, I have, but I, I, I can't bring the text to mind right there's now. A, there's a line, there's a line in it that I absolutely love, but it goes, all I have is a voice to undo the folded lie, the romantic lie in the brain of the central man in the street." The lie of authority, which buildings scrape the sky, mm -hmm. right? It's a lie. That's basically yes. what you're saying is it's a lie. Nobody should have authority over you in an area that you are the expert in. Well, yeah, exactly. You see, the, 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 again, it's not an argument against expertise. It's, uh, it's uh, an argument about the limits of expertise. Uh, expertise is not unlimited. Uh, and there is no such thing as an expert in, uh, you know, uh, running in society. Everything. In everything, an expert in everything. So, 
So this gets back to the, you know, gardeners versus designers thing. You know, designers believe that uh, something is, uh, uh, you know, society can only work if it's the result of, you know, the application of some expert intelligence, right? And I, I, my argument is that's, 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 that's nonsense. In fact, those societies that have tried to exist solely on the basis of expert design are the societies that have failed. The societies that succeed are the ones who say, uh, we recognize the importance of expertise, but we recognize that expertise is distributed throughout society in unpredictable and uncontrollable ways. And if we want, as a society, to make use of all the knowledge that's available in society, we can't tell people what to do from the top. What we have to do is we have to have institutions that allow people to act on their knowledge while at the same time protecting the interests of other people in society. So, you know, just because you are Elon Musk and know how to run, you know, multi-billion dollar corporations and whatever it is, I, I, I don't understand what Elon Musk knows, but it's something pretty interesting. Uh, um, you know, th th that, uh, you know, we have to coordinate the actions of all these different kinds of expertise. And we do that not by telling people what to do. You know, the analogy, I think, the correct analogy, is that what government is for is a bit like the rules of the road. You know, when, when you think about the rules of the road, the rules of the road don't care where you're going. They don't care why you're going there. They don't care who you're going with. They don't care who you're going to see. Uh, uh, the only thing the rules of the road do is to make sure that all the other people on the road who are also going to unknown locations for unknown reasons and unknowable reasons, we, we don't tell them where to go. What we say is if you're going to use the roads, you have to act in such a way that you don't damage other users of the road and you, 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 you all get there safely. And so we don't tell you where to go. We don't tell you where to go, what, what to do, who to travel with, why. Uh, but we do put in place rules that coordinate all these, you know, this massive range of, uh, of, uh, of activities and ideas and priorities and so on, um, uh, and, and let people act on their own knowledge but uh, make sure that they uh, uh, are not allowed to hurt other people while they're, while they're doing it. And that's, that's the secret of a great society uh, that actually does what I said a minute ago, which is to act on the most knowledge possible. It's societies that act on the most knowledge possible out of the successful ones. And the more we limit uh, your ability and my ability and uh, everybody else's ability to act on our own knowledge, the more we limit the knowledge that uh, society uh, can incorporate in its action, in its activities. Well, Brian, thank you so much for for joining us on the show today, and we we thank you for your knowledge and your and your your thought um, and the ideas that you communicated today. That it's it's been a very very interesting conversation. I want to highlight one more time um, for the listeners who want to know more: where can people find your book? Oh, I happen to have a copy right here. Uh, so uh, it, it's called Gardeners versus Designers. I'm pretty sure you can get it on uh, Amazon. Sutherland House is the um, uh, is the publisher, and um, uh, you know uh, half the book is uh, about uh, laying out this argument that uh, you know what we have to worry about is not uh, the knowledge that experts have. Uh, the problem we have to worry about is the ignorance that uh, is characteristic of human beings. We we have to manage the problem of ignorance, not the manage, not uh, not the, uh, the 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 supply of knowledge that we have in society. So the first half lays out that uh, argument. The second half sort of applies it to you know. There's a chapter about climate change and the environment. There's a chapter about healthcare and uh, you know uh, uh, cities and how we should organize cities. So I kind of. I, I, I take these ideas and I apply them in a practical way to issues that we wrestle with as a society. All right. Well, go Thanks, get the book. Brian, and, and please, everybody, uh, buy this book. This book is outlining a lot of the philosophy that Zach and I are talking about all the time, which is the centralization of power is a great evil. The decentralization of power is the only way to promote freedom and human flourishing. Here, here.
<laughs> well, Brian, thank you for being here. And uh, yeah, we appreciate your time. We'll see, you, we'll see you all next time. Thank you for listening to The Canadian Story. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter at The CAD Story. That's The CAD Story. If you enjoy this podcast, please share it with your friends and family. Let's work together to remind Canadians how great their country is.